Your Wavelength, a podcast on physics and publishing. We take you behind the scene of some of the most interesting work published in the Nature portfolio. We talk to the authors and to the editors and bring you the latest insights. And welcome to On Your Wavelength. My name is Ankita Nerban. I'm an editor at Nature Reviews Physics, and I'm joining you from London today. And my name is Cristiano Matricardi. I'm an editor of Nature Communication, and as always, I'm joining you from Berlin. So today it's like the fourth episode, isn't it? The third or fourth episode of On Your Wavelength, Ankita, no? Yeah. Yeah, it's the fourth episode. We were doing a lot of photonicsy papers, but this yeah. this week we've got something a little bit different. So yeah, I stay hope tuned you for like that. it. I hope you like it, but just we will see. But like the first thing I actually wanted to start with is I wanted to ask you: Did you see this uh, new Nature paper that came out um, just last week about our perception of morality? So I think, especially these days when I don't know the political news is all over the place, there's this um, feeling we often have that things are just getting worse and worse over time. Uh, but there was a survey done over, I think, 70 years, so a really long time. And this idea that things are getting worse has been around for 70 years, basically. People always think that things are getting worse than they were before. But interestingly, if you ask the same people to rate the morality of the current times, they actually, do, it doesn't change. So it's this like weird perception we have that things are actually like, are just always getting worse. But if you ask them, you know, like, actually, what, how are things now? How would you rate the morality of your peers? People tend to be quite positive. So I thought that was like interesting because it's always, these things always seem a bit anecdotal, but having like a proper 70 year survey. Yeah. Um, the, fir the first thing, yeah. the first thing I actually uh, thought when I read this uh, manuscript was like, how do you measure morality? You know, uh, maybe you, you can measure, you know, wavelength, you can measure whatever, but just morality is not like just, there's no detective well, morality. Well, it's a perception you know? of morality though. I'm actually reading a book, uh, it's called Factfulness. His punchline it tells exactly like this, 10 reasons why we are wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. And it seems mm. like... So it's very counterintuitive, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's something like... And the main experiment he keep doing and doing again during his book, he's uh, an expert in health, um, uh, science and, and society, he creates questions and he made surveys and he gives this question to chimpanzee and to a, 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 um, a group of, um, of experts. These questions are always questions of uh, multiple answers. So three uh, answer, three possible answer, only one, is only one is right. And the thing is that, of course, chimpanzee just go every time casually and they get the right answer the 33.333% of the time. Rather, the other person, just expert or may, mainly society, doesn't get the, uh, uh, the uh, right answer and just for more than 15, 20 oscillate, but just they, of course, perform worse than a chimpanzee. This is because... Oh, that's interesting. So is, they're basically performing worse than a random... Exactly. Sample, as ran, right? A random answer. Because we have internal biases that actually let us perceive the world worse than it, it is really actually uh, happening outside. For example, uh, how the people who don't have access to food just are increasing, but in reality, they are decreasing. 
many more people, he separate people in four levels and uh, um, from level one, extreme poverty, poverty and level four, extreme uh, richness, let's say. And, um, and the people who uh, passed from extreme poverty just uh, to extreme, uh, uh, just to level three or four, uh, it's it's really high. So uh, at the beginning of the last century, there were many more poor people that didn't have access to food. And right now, we are in a great way, in a, in a, just in a good way to give everyone in the earth great condition for food and health. So our perception is always like something optimistic to read in times like this. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 always distorted. It's like we need to be aware that just our perception about the world can be distorted. Yeah, but it's always interesting also just to challenge our intuitions and assumptions. And I think particularly as physicists, that's really important for us to do, right? Like quite often you'll have an intuition about how a certain experiment will work and then the data will just surprise you. Yeah. Um, which is always wonderful when that happens. But it's a good reminder that we're often wrong. Yeah. Shall we, shall we start with the, with the big story? So the paper today is about uh, one-dimensional systems and 1D physics is quite different to the physics we see in two dimensions or three dimensions. So there's lots of interesting, crazy things that happen. And particularly this paper looks at moving away from like the ideal theoretical models and pushing beyond experimentally to see some interesting new physics. It was published in Nature Communications right at the end of last month on the 31st of May called Thermal Disruption of a Luttinger Liquid. And we'll be talking more about that with one of the authors and the editor handled it. So stay tuned. The idea for this study basically came from having previously studied one-dimensional systems uh, for quite an, a long time in our group. And we recently were able to really verify that the 1D systems we were making in our lab are really one-dimensional and really behaving according to expected theory and now for this paper the idea was to step beyond that and to begin to push beyond the limits of theory and push away from ideal circumstances to be able to you know drive the field forward and you know see something new I think we had had a few conversations with some theorists. One of the ideas that he had was for us to raise the temperature in our system and look for disruption of the low temperature one dimensional physics that we have previously studied. You know, we are looking at various other axes on which we could tune parameters and temperature is one of those axes. So we were doing kind of exploratory studies it wasn't necessarily that we were thinking okay now we're going to write a paper on thermal disruption we were just you know exploring the landscape because a lot of these you know there hasn't been much experimental work when going away from the ideal latinger liquid case so today i'm joined by rowan senaratne one of the authors of this paper rowan is a research scientist at rice university in houston texas after completing his PhD in physics at the University of California, Santa Barbara, he joined Randall Hewlett's Cold Atom Research Group at RISE as a postdoc. Here, he's been leading a team which uses ultra-cold lithium atoms to simulate the physics of electrons in one dimension, which is what the paper is about today. And also, I'm joined here by 
Shanat Gaire, a senior editor at Nature Communications who handled the paper. He has a PhD in experimental atomic molecular and optical physics, in which he investigated ultrafast processes in molecules using ultrafast lasers and synchrotron X-ray sources. For the journal, he also handles plasma physics and nuclear physics. So Rowan, I'll start with you today. Tell us a bit more about this paper. It's about probing a 1D system, but let's take a step back first and um, ask you a little bit about why one dimensions? What what do you find in 1D that you don't get in 2D or 3D, which is maybe what we're a bit more familiar with? Yeah, so the world of one dimension is actually very different uh, to both 3D and 2D. Um, you can think about it as if you had, uh, think about a pearl necklace and you think of pearls along this necklace. If you want to move them uh, around, you actually have to move all of the pearls on the necklace because each one interacts with the one next to it, which interacts with the one next to it. Um, and, you know, basically the idea is that they can't move around each other because they can only move in one dimension. And quantum mechanically, this means that if you have particles in one dimension, if you make any perturbation, uh, it affects the entire chain. So all excitations are collective. And this is called tomonaga latinja liquid theory. And it's it's fundamentally different from Fermi liquid theory and leads to some very different phenomena. One of these phenomena is a so-called spin charge separation. You know, each electron individually has both a charge and a spin. In three and two dimensions, you would imagine that if you move an electron around, you move both charge and spin around. But it turns out in one dimension, you can move charge around independently of spin and vice versa. You can move spin independently of charge. And even more bizarrely, they have different speeds. And so this is very, very yeah, different. Yeah, that, that is very different. You can't really dimensions. imagine charge and spin as being separate things and sort of a 3D lattice. So you've told us a little bit about the tomonaga lertinger liquid theory, which right. I believe has been around for a few years now. Um, so what are the big open theoretical questions in the field at the moment? So as you uh, mentioned, there's been a lot of work in this field theoretically over the past few decades. There is a method called the, the beta ansatz method, which can be used to exactly solve one-dimensional systems at absolute zero in a homogeneous 1D tube. As soon as you begin to step away from these conditions, things become more complicated, and particularly when you increase the temperature. We've previously, before this paper, we were working at low enough temperatures where we could still apply the absolute zero solution using the beta ansatz to our system. And so given that we had benchmarked it to the exact results, we were now able to go beyond that. And so what we were looking at in this paper was increasing the temperature. And that's one of those open areas in the field. Other open areas involve, you know, for example, you can also tune the dimensionality of these systems uh, experimentally. So you can make it less 1D. You can when you have say multiple less 1D, 1D chains you mean, and allow them to interact. More or less 1D? Yeah, so uh, effectively what I was describing there, I was, was meaning that you would have multiple tubes and, and begin to allow them to couple to each other. And the amount of coupling 
will push you away okay, so it's from like having a series of pearl necklaces in parallel and then there are some interactions between each necklace i see okay sure yeah 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 so i mean there's a lot of motivation for this kind of study because in real materials in in solid state this is often what you find so there are these organic salts that have effectively quasi 1d chains in them but there is some amount of coupling between them and so there's a lot of motivation for for theorists to study this kind of system but it's also a system that we can prepare tell me a little in, bit more about the experimental side of this field you've mentioned that you used cold atoms in this paper but are there other ways you can at 1D systems, and can you tell us a little bit about the different platforms and the differences between them? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say cold atoms is kind of a more recent tool to study one-dimensional physics. Originally, a lot of the work was done in solid state and, and continues to be done in solid state. In the 90s and early 2000s, there were a number of landmark results in, in 1D physics, experimental results. There were some looking at various compounds that have 1D chains in them, as I described earlier. Um, and then beyond that, there are semiconductor heterostructures where people um, etch nanowires into semiconductors and do tunneling conductance measurements. Cold atoms has sort of developed as this tool for quantum simulation over the past 20 years. And so the, the idea here is that we can produce dilute gases of neutral atoms, and we can trap them in optical lattices. These are interference patterns created using lasers, which mimic the periodic structure in crystalline lattices. And so there have been a number of results over the past 20 years looking at uh, many things that were predicted and observed in solid state in cold atoms. And what we were looking at is, you know, moving into one dimension. And cold atoms is also a very good platform for studying 1D systems because we can make uh, tightly confined tubes using uh, optical lattices. And what we do is we, we make a 2D optical lattice. So we have uh, a standing wave of light in two dimensions in, uh, intersecting with each other. And this, is, this creates a 2D array of, of quasi 1D tubes. And you can load the atoms into these quasi 1D tubes. And you can, if they are sufficiently cold and uh, you, you, there are not too many of the atoms in each tube, then they behave, they all uh, occupy the lowest lying radial uh, state of these tubes. So that they, the, they are all uh, only interacting with each other in one dimension effectively. And you can think of the so physics as being So for this 1D. particular paper, you created a 2D lattice and then confined 1D atoms in it, in this cold atom system. And you mentioned earlier that this this paper is about ramping up the temperature and seeing what happens because all the theories really rely on zero Kelvin. So could you give us a sense, firstly, of the temperature ranges that you were working in and then the main results? Yeah, so uh, our previous work was done at about 250 nanokelvin. We were able to extract that temperature by comparing it to theory that had been modified from that zero kelvin result. 250 nanokelvin sounds very cold. If you compare it to the Fermi temperature, which is the important energy scale when you're talking about 
cold fermions. That's about 0.2 or 0.25 of the Fermi temperature. So it's it's not ridiculously cold when you compare it to solid state experiments, but it's cold enough to see uh, spin charge separation. And in this paper, we were pushing that temperature up towards the Fermi temperature. So between from 250 nanokelvin up to a microkelvin and beyond. Um, and it turns out there are a couple different regimes. So what happened when you increase the temperature? By, I imagine uh, spin charge separation stopped. What else did you find? Yeah, so there was this theoretical expectation that you no longer have a spin mode. And that's because you expect spin coherence to be lost at higher temperatures. And you expect spin coherence to be lost uh, sooner than charge coherence as you increase the temperature. And that's because the characteristic energy scale for spin excitations is lower than for charge excitations. And so what we saw was that, that the charge mode continued to propagate, but we saw that the gas was still responding to an excitation, which we thought would only excite the spin mode. What we think is happening is that because of this decoherence of the spin degree of freedom, our method of exciting the spin excitations actually also couples to the charge sector because we're no longer working with the ideal gas. So we expect to see both excitations, but we only see the gas respond at the characteristic velocity of the charge excitation, which means that both types of probing of the system give us the same response. And so this was initially surprising to us, but is, uh, you know, now that we thought about it a bit more, it makes more sense to us that the gas only has one propagating mode and we were able to confirm that. And once you go beyond this intermediate temperature regime into a thermal regime, then you, you no longer have either of the modes because now you're in a thermal gas. So you don't really but it have seems like the situation in practice was a little bit more complicated than you would have expected from the theory in terms of both modes being excited. So... How did your theorist colleagues respond to your results? Is that is that something that's interesting for them on a theoretical level? Yeah, I mean, I think they they were also surprised by this because, you know, this has been a longstanding prediction in theory that, you know, the spin mode would not propagate. But we sort of see uh, excitations to both types of probing. And I think that certainly is something that needs to be studied in more detail in theory. And thinking about the way in which the gas responds exactly to the type of probing that we are doing, so we can more easily compare our results to so theory. So is that something you're working on at the moment, or are you moving on to something else? What's next for you? After this experiment where we were looking at higher temperature uh, regions, uh, we switched to looking at attractive re uh, interactions. So all of this work that we've been talking about has been in the regime where the uh, atoms are uh, repelling each other. And the reason why that's interesting is because electrons repel each other because of the Coulomb force. But it turns out with cold atoms, you have this freedom to tune the interactions between the atoms. And one of the things we can do is make the atoms actually attract each other. And so this is kind of a very exotic system which you know really doesn't have an analog in in solid state uh, materials and so in some sense it's even more exotic so uh, we've been looking at uh, probing 
that regime. And something interesting that happens in that regime is that the uh, energy hierarchy of spin and charge is actually inverted. So you may expect as you increase temperature on the attractive side, charge coherence is lost sooner than spin coherence. So that's something interesting, which really I haven't seen much discussion mm -hmm. of this in the literature at all from the theory side. But perhaps Thank it's you. something that we can look um, at. Vishenath, um, I'm going to turn to you now. What was your reaction when this paper landed on your desk? Yeah, it was interesting. The research is done with ultra cold systems for something that has been long discussed in solid state system. First of all, it's an alternative platform, and then you have different experimental probes to understand the the knowledge. That's why it was interesting to have it in my folder when it arrived. Then a couple of things were the highlights for me. So first it was a uh, ultra-cold platform and then there was also this spin and charge separation as Ruan explained earlier. And then there is also this spin coherent and spin incoherent and there is a transition or a crossover from one design to the other design. So these were the highlighting points for me to And a bit more broadly, um, and what consider sort it. of attributes do you look for for an Asia communications paper? So uh, what we look for is what is the novelty, like what is the new that is being presented uh, and also what is the advance over the existing studies even though uh, I think the experimental method sometimes might be already known but we look for what is the study going beyond the existing knowledge for example going into the non-linear effects like exploring non-linear effects was one of the highlights here cold atoms that you receive a lot of submissions on at the moment So one of the topic that comes up is this synthetic dimension, like they put ultra-cold atoms in a lattice and then somehow you can make a ladder-like arrangement on momentum space and then you see a extra dimension, that's why it's called synthetic dimension. And then there is also possibility of doing quantum simulation trying to go into the quantum design and study quantum optics related uh, phenomena using the ultra-cold atoms and then also the atomic optical clocks using Lots the of exciting cold papers. atoms. In addition to handling research papers for Nature Communications, you also are involved in organizing these nature conferences, right? Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the nature conferences are organized in collaboration with research institutions. So once the editors uh, are contacted and the topic is of interest, and then the conference is approved. And then uh, the editors from different nature journals who handle the manuscript on the topic come together and then discuss with the host institution about selecting the topics 
and then selecting the format of the conference, choosing the invited speakers and other uh, general speakers. And then once we have the abstract submitted, then we have to go through sorting the abstracts. Uh, one thing I like to highlight is the invited speakers are invited by the journal editors. So are you organizing the, one of the, the moments? Is there something upcoming that you're involved with? Uh, uh, not at the moment. In the past, I was involved in two of them. One was on plasma physics and the other one was uh, molecules in action, like visualizing molecules in action using ultra-fast light sources. It's a lot different than your day-to-day -day editorial experience. So it's, it's very rewarding. And also you get to go there and it's always nice to, to be a bit more in contact with the research communities, I think, as editors. It's one of the reasons I really like doing this podcast, because it gives me an excuse to talk to some authors <laughs> and find out a little bit more that's yeah, behind the paper.